53 verses. I was trying to figure like how do you how do you how do you deal with a text this big? Yeah, you thought it was a typo. It's not. So we are with Deacon Stephen. That's who we're with. Don't forget this is the guy. But I can't I can't we can't go past this. Let's look back a couple weeks ago, uh, Acts chapter six. And again, we talked about this like why in the world do these guys have to be so spiritually qualified to carry plates from one place to another? That's kind of the idea we talked about, right? Like it said, find these men, the Hellenist widows aren't being fed. Again, uh, to me, any any person with a pulse can carry food from one location to another, but they said, No, no, no. We don't just want them to have the ability to carry plates. We want them to be men full of the spirit and of wisdom. Now we're starting to see why. Because Stephen the deacon is getting ready to give his last speech on earth. And Stephen the deacon doesn't say, I tell you what, I just carry plates around this place. You really want to talk to one of the apostles. They're the ones who, who really believe this stuff. I just, I just feed the Hellenist widows. That's, that's all I do know. He, he doesn't he doesn't hesitate. And this is, these are the words that will, that will fuel the fury in the hearts of those who accuse him, so much so that they will stone him to death. Now keep in mind, as we talk about that next week, this wasn't like you could just kind of from afar lob a stone and passively kill the person you believe deserve to die. No, the first one would take a stone and strike it across the head of the person to be stoned. So you really had to believe they were wrong. I was thinking about breaking this up, and I may, but let's just deal with it. And we need to absorb what he's saying here. He's giving us an Old Testament survey. Before we begin this text, I want you to look at the charge against him in chapter 6, verse 13. The council looks at Stephen and they say, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law as well. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses delivered to us. The charge against Stephen is that he is defiling in the name of Jesus this holy temple place. So it stands to reason that much of Stephen's speech is centered on all the wandering and exile that Israel has underwent as a people. Isn't it interesting? His speech will focus on all that God has done, not in this place, but in their lives. So the high priest says, Stephen, are, are these things so? So brothers and fathers, hear me. He says, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran and his father died. God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living, Israel. 
Jerusalem, he says, yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave and inflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob, the 12 patriarchs. So we're done with the story of Abraham. The promises to Abraham, keep those in mind. The Bible also tells us that the promises to Abraham, that he would have more descendants than there are stars in the sky. We are clearly told that we who are in Christ are recipients of that promise, that we are the descendants of Abraham. And so he sets up all of redemptive history as the Bible sets up all of redemptive history as somehow coming through Abraham, the promise fulfilled through Abraham. And then he looks at another one named Joseph. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, verse 9, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all, and Jacob went down into Egypt and he died. He and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. This is a very quick review. If you have not read these stories in the Old Testament, they're not going to make a whole lot of sense to you, but most of us are familiar, um, I would imagine, at least to some degree with what's happening here. This is the story of how Israel got to Egypt. Most of us are familiar with the Passover. This is how they got there. Joseph was left for dead practically as a slave by his brothers who were jealous. And all of this flows from this promise to Abraham that his descendants, that that salvation would come through his descendants. Man, it looks like it's really messed up at this point. That's the goal. But as the time of promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He killed this dude. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. I I hope you're seeing where he's building this thing. Moses believed that by killing the oppressor in Egypt, the Egyptian who beat an Israelite, he was believing that his brothers would see salvation come by his hand, but they did not understand. Think about the context of Stephen's speech right now. The deliverer has been sent. 
You, you can see this. He has come. He has healed. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. I hope you understand. But he tells us now twice a story where the brothers, when they came to Egypt, didn't recognize Joseph. And now they didn't recognize the salvation, the redemption that Joseph was offering them in grain. And Moses as well was missed. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness at Mount Sinai in a flame of fire and a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. And then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, this Moses whom they rejected, there's the point, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise you up, a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received the living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets from Amos. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the a Moloch and the star of your God Raphan and the images you made to worship and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. And it's almost like here Stephen saying, you're saying that I come here to speak a message to change the customs of Moses? You don't even know this Moses. You don't know the redemption that Moses provided for you in the Lord God Almighty. Don't talk to me about the customs of Moses when you miss the the person, the work, and the mission of Moses. Our fathers, verse 44, had the tent of witness in the wilderness just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it. They're starting to make the tabernacle. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, says the Lord, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And so he concludes this history by saying, you're missing the whole point. Just in case 
They missed it. He says this. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Let's pray. Father, this is, this is an overwhelming amount of just text and even more overwhelming just to see from it that we, although separated by a couple thousand years and many thousand miles, are not that far from it. Stephen's speech spoken to the council in Jerusalem is for the present. So by Your Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit the council rejected, Lord, we accept and ask that He, Your Spirit, would convict and commission us from Your Holy Word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. That's a lot. We did it. 53 verses. I don't know if I've ever read 53 verses in a sermon like that. And it, you know, it's 9.26 a.m. So, um, closing announcements and we'll see you later. History repeats itself. That's what worries me a little bit. History repeats itself throughout the Old Testament. In fact, the Old Testament is a story of rebellion, repentance, and redemption. Everywhere you look. If you want to know what the Bible is about, it's about rebellion, repentance, and redemption. And I don't think that the cyclical nature of human history stopped when the canon of Scripture was completed. I think that we have continued the same cycle. The first thing I would just say to you as you look at the text this morning is that with all the problems in the world, with all the problems throughout Israel's history, take it the garden, take it the Babylonians or the Assyrians or any external invader, the gods of Moloch, the gods of foreign countries, the uh, nations, foreign nations, all, and, you, and you, they're referenced in the text. Of all the external problems in the world, Stephen says the greatest problem for you, Israel, is you. The greatest threat to the people of God, the greatest threat to Christ's church, is us. It's an inward problem. And it's so simple for us to look at the headlines of the day and say, literally, like, what is the world coming to? And what is a Christian to do when, in fact, we've done a pretty good job over the course of a couple thousand years of ripping ourselves apart one by one from the inside? So the problem is you, Stephen says, and history continues to repeat itself. It's not out there. It's not the outward force. It's the inward stuff. And the framing of the argument is really important. 
They bring Stephen before him. They have this beautiful temple. This is the second temple they're on. The first one was destroyed in 586 BC, and the second one was started to rebuild a few years later. It took many years to complete Herod's temple. But they have this wonderful temple where they understand is a permanent manifestation of the tabernacle. And so what they believe about this temple is that as long as the temple is there, God dwells and is pleased with his people. As long as the high priest annually goes in to, to pay for the sins of the people with a sacrifice once a year, as long as they literally go to the temple multiple times a day to pray and do all the things right and keep the Gentiles where the Gentiles belong and the Jewish believers where they are and the women where they are. And as long as they do all that right, God is inherently pleased with those sacrifices of the people. As long as they worship in this place, God is pleased. And so Stephen responds to those arguments. They say Stephen comes just like this Jesus before him saying they will destroy this place. Don't mess with our place. It's a belief that by simply being in a place, you're somehow more righteous. And you're saying, no, we don't have any deal with that in 2022 or in the last century. I'm going to show you how we've kind of elevated place ourselves with one simple phrase. You may have heard it before. Don't cuss in church. You ever heard that? Don't lie in church. Don't run in church. Can't tell you people say, don't lie. I mean, don't, don't lie. You're in church. Now, sometimes we're just kind of kidding with this. But it's this idea that as long as you're in this building, that you need to behave differently than another building. Right? Like, I hope that you don't cuss in church, because I hope you aren't cuss like a sailor like any part of your life. But it's this notion that when you walk through those doors, there is a decorum and reverence about your life that maybe you don't have anywhere else. This place God's house, as we've often said. And while I appreciate the sentiment behind it, no, I don't think we should disrespect the space. Uh, I think we should be respectful, have some decorum, all these things. But the way that this idea, this notion has played out, probably with such pure and biblical motives in the beginning, this is the same idea at work in the text, that place somehow determines behavior. The problem is, is that place has no true power in a person's life. The temple itself as it stands, the brick and mortar, so to speak, of this place in Jerusalem had no power over the hearts or souls of men. It was just a place. But the thing that the Jewish people could do, and rightly so, being given by God, is they could look at the temple and say, look what we built for our God. Look at those. I mean, they probably sat around and in years, this is many years later, we're looking at like 500 years later, this thing is up and they could say, man, they, they have their memory plaques and they could say, my dad or my grandfather put that block in the temple. There was ownership here. A skewed view of it. There was this idea that they had given God a house worthy of His holiness. Aren't you glad we did this for God? And it's the same idea that kind of informs this idea that the place is this thing that we build together and kind of say, look, God, don't you love us now? Aren't we great? Aren't we wonderful that we protect this place for you? 
It was their pride, their symbol of identity. And at the end of the day, literally, the temple was the place they could go to have their sins forgiven, like a spiritual spa where they could go just to reset. This was the center of their life. Every time the doors were open, they were there. Every day. Because not only did God say that He dwelt there, but again, they could say, it's ours. Don't cuss in the temple because this place is different than the rest of the world. Be someone different when you're here. Let God have territory over this space and this place. Wait till Monday to cuss people out. Y'all laugh because it's true. (laughs) You've seen brothers and sisters who live their lives like hell, but when they come in this place, they're put together. Because when your life is literally, when you're living a life like hell because you have no Christ, but you're just religious enough to go to church every Sunday, this is all you got. When Christ is not sustaining you and when the Holy Spirit is not dwelling within you, you desperately need this like an IV to stay alive because you just feel a little better about yourself. I may live like hell, but at least I went to church. This place. And that's what makes them so mad. The only thing that they can reach out and touch and identify with God, Stephen is saying some really crazy things. He's saying change stuff, like this is going to change. And so they're desperate. But here's the scariest part of this all, is they miss in the name of God, a temple for God, they miss God. Because they prefer this place. They, they miss the Messiah because of this place and this, this worldview that they have developed around themselves. Don't miss what God is doing because of what you are doing. Like that's the point here. You're so busy in this place. You're so busy calculating what is a violation of the law and what is not all day long that you're making these lists and going to the rabbis and saying, we need a little clarity on this. Should it be yes or no? Check yes or no right here. They're so busy doing things for God, they miss God. They're so busy being about God, they miss Him. They're so busy being about Jesus, they miss Jesus, the Messiah. And so Stephen has this theme that he says, listen, you need to understand that you have been brought closest to God, not when you were in this place, but when you were exiled far from this place. When you identify with the exilic nature of God's salvation, that you do not have a place you belong, that is when God has redeemed you and been seen most powerfully in your life. You forget the whole story. You're forgetting the parts of your past that you don't want to remember. You just remember this temple that is here. You fail to acknowledge the whole story. From the promise to Abraham to the exile of Moses, the theme of exile and sojourning and wandering throughout the world is a very integral, and I would say the majority of the years that have passed, the Israelites, their history passed without a temple rather than with one. 
you have a story of exile. And I think this really is not just the message to help recenter the Israelites as a people, but to recenter the church, that we don't have a place on earth that we truly belong. Did you know that? We don't. A statement was made yesterday that I heard and I've heard many times, and the statement is essentially it's becoming more difficult to be a Christian. And the reason for that's obvious. I mean, just pull up Huffington Post or any news site, and you're going to see the headline is going to fundamentally disagree with a worldview that you hold and believe, I bet. But then I hear those statements. It's becoming more difficult to become a Christian. I think back to Jonathan Mosley, pastor of Kings Hill Church in Boston. When he was here one time, he says, America is the easiest country in the world to say you're a Christian, and it is the most difficult country in the world to actually be a Christian. Because it is so difficult for us to lose ourselves and get Christ. It is so fundamentally difficult ridiculously simple to say, I want Christ in my life. You see, peoples and nations in exile throughout history didn't want their life. These people of Israel didn't want to be wandering. No one wants to be wandering literally where your next meal will come from. I mean, I just think about the dependency on the Lord in the Lord's prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. But Seth Norris, I know likely that I have several options for where I'm going to eat for the rest of the day, just like y'all. But when you don't, when you really don't know where your daily bread's coming from and you pray that the Lord would give you your daily bread, whether physical or spiritual, there's a whole nother layer there, a whole nother level of dependence And so, no, I don't necessarily agree that it's getting harder for Christians. In fact, I think it may be getting simpler in this way to know who are Christian and know who are not. To know those who leave the faith because difficult times put a little pressure on them. But the whole story is, is that God has worked most abundantly in and through exile and imprisonment. From Abraham all the way through, he tells this story of a a man named Abraham who wasn't even allowed himself to occupy or to own the land, but rather that would be pushed down to his descendants. And from him, the descendants that were supposed to outnumber all the stars, you get all these brothers and they'd hate Joseph. And so one brother's like, hey, let's kill him. He's everybody's favorite. We don't like him. Let's kill him. And another compassionate brother says, no, let's just let him be sold into slavery, essentially. And he is sold into slavery in Egypt. This guy goes into Egypt and by God's grace, rises to great power in Egypt. And all is well until they forget Joseph and they enslave the people of Israel. They, They keep them in enslavement. And God works in the enslavement for what? The Passover calls his people out of Egypt and still does not allow Moses himself in all the goodness of Moses does not allow Moses to enter the promised land. There isn't like this peaceful, happy history at work yet. 
And I think Peter is on to this in the New Testament. He says, listen, you need to understand. In chapter 2 of 1 Peter, he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, he's speaking to actual sojourning exiled Christians in the first century, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Like, as sojourners and exiles, understand that you are not only on physical, physically exiled from your people in Israel, but you are spiritually exiled from the rest of the world. So listen, don't, don't, don't eat the food of them. Don't, don't take the bait. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Like there is this real calling to simply see, as Stephen points out, you really don't have a place here. Your place is not on earth. God redeems His people when they are most alienated from the power and things of this world. The further we are from dependence upon the things of this world, the more holy and active and big our God becomes. And so I, I always speak on this issue from a part of me like the protective dad side. I don't want my kids to experience difficulty. Who does in that way? But then I also speak to this idea from kind of the historical overarching reality of life. And the only thing I can speak to culturally is that perhaps as the church becomes more marginalized, as the gospel becomes even more hated, because we know that people hate the gospel, and when they pretend they like they like it, they're liars, the Bible would say that they hate it. And that as we become more and more and more cornered, so to speak, the hope I have is this, that this world will finally start to feel less like our home. Because I think it's the only thing when we talk about saving the church. It's the only thing that will make the true church come alive. And I'm not wanting that, believe me. but I just don't see another way about it historically. If history repeats itself and we see humanity continuing in the cycle and God doing the same thing, it is when we feel most like sojourners and exiles that we identify most with our king and his kingdom. And I guess... My tension reveals my immaturity as well. Because ultimately what you end up getting is you get more of God. 
When you have less here and it's, you're pushed and you're marginalized and you're put on the outskirts and you're presumed to be an idiot by people who don't even know you and people hate you because of something you believe in, when you start to feel the exile, there is no doubt that you begin to see the glory of God in a new and beautiful way. And so my selfishness or my immaturity may be revealed in my lack of understanding of His goodness and glory. Because I'm dependent on these things. They're what I know. But I just don't want to miss God. And then I think about my kids and I say, I don't want these things to happen for my kids. But, but, but could my children experience the glory and beauty and majesty and sovereignty of God in a way that I even have never seen? Is it possible that in our fears for the next generation, we're failing to see the opportunity of true worshipers come before the Lord Jesus Christ and worship Him without any baggage of this cultural Christianity and simply lift up and see the goodness and sufficiency of Christ that when they cry out that Christ is all I have and all I need, they mean what they say and they say what they mean. Is that, is that I, now I think, like, oh my goodness, like, am I viewing this from this complete worldly place? And I think I am. I just don't want to miss God. I don't want you to miss God in the name of God. I don't want you to miss Jesus in the name of Jesus. I don't want to miss Jesus in the name of Jesus. I want to see him in his glory. I want to see him unadulterated by world, the world and cultural Christianity in a place where we can like talk about Jesus on the sidewalk and he's become so watered down with this form of cultural Christianity that some of us are, I'm not even sure that many of us can see him for who he is. The golden calf is not far from any one of you or me either. Because the golden calf is a quick fix to feel like you're doing something well or to get what you want. So we just need to look at the whole story, y'all, and not forget the story not to forget the story that it's not in this place where God has been seen most mightily, but it is in the exile. It is in the wandering. It's when God's people were shoved away from the world or pulled from the holy place to live as aliens, as strangers and sojourners. And his real point here is not only to, when you see it in all of history, you're going to see that there is, a, there is a nature to the way God works amongst his people that is not in this place, but rather it is in their, it is in their wanderings. But his real point here, whether it's speaking of Joseph who was not recognized by his brothers, or Moses who was not recognized by his people, or Jesus who is now not recognized by them, that they have failed, most damning, they have failed to recognize the Redeemer sent for them. Because even in their rebellion and even in their hard-heartedness, God has never ceased to send a Redeemer. He has never stopped sending a Redeemer until ultimately He sent the Redeemer of all Redeemers in Christ Jesus. Throughout history, God has sent Redeemers, raising up Joseph and raising up Noah, even before that, raising up Moses. He has been faithful in every generation and all the rebellion of the people and all the nastiness and filth of their lives, even looking upon the world and saying, is there anyone who desires me. Raising up prophets like Isaiah, raising up prophets like Jeremiah, he has never failed to raise up the Redeemer and in sending the Messiah, Christ Jesus, the one, the Israelites, the Jewish believers in the temple said they were looking out for on the horizon line. He has come, but he has not come with an army. He has not come as an earthly king and he's not come in the ways they expected, but rather he came in the most humble of ways, very similar to the story of Moses, snuck up on them as a, as a child of a virgin, raised up in the most humble of situations 
situations and now ultimately crucified, exiled to death for them, and they still don't recognize him because they don't recognize exile. And here he has come. So busy looking for the right kind of Jesus and the right type of person that they failed to receive the Redeemer appointed for the task. And isn't it fascinating how in Stephen's speech he brings up some of the accusations against Moses as they looked at Moses who would be called to redeem them. Who made you a ruler and a judge? They scoffed back at Moses. Similar to the banter thrown back at Jesus. Let me just share a quote with you to summarize all that we've seen this morning. By John Snyder, he says, These Israelites had the right Bible and the right words, but they were living under the influence of a God they had invented. They had made a God that looked like them. Because of God's delayed wrath, the Jews assumed that he thought about sin the same way they did. Because their refashioned God was just fine with their choices, they could continue to attend religious services while living for themselves. It is a frightening reality. Throughout the centuries, many people have held the right book in their hands and worshipped a man-made God in their hearts. So here we are again. 2,000 years after Stephen's speech. And we as people still worship the wrong thing. We're still intoxicated by systems and structures, the things in this world that give us pleasure. Here we are again. I've shared this several times, and I think it's worth sharing again because there's always new folks in the space. But when I came to know Christ in my early 20s, the reason and what the Lord used that I would come to know Christ was a notion and the reality that the church pew has never equated to salvation. And for many of you who maybe you thought about that for a long time, So people ask about call to ministry and all those kind of things, and it was just really lumped together. But I knew that my purpose would be to call out the sinners who sit in the pews. Sinners like me. Brothers and sisters, maybe, but all friends who have spent their years, whether few or many, going to church, shaking the right hands, and trying not to cuss. The type of people who, when you have funerals, people get up and they talk about how much you loved things and the Lord. But really, it's just the things. Men and women who have great opinions on things like what the church should be and ought to be, and are faithful servants to the church at the same time. 
If they drink, it's only on vacation because others won't see them. They live a good life. They provide for their family. They're the kind of people you love to be around. And they love to be around you, hopefully. When you think of a good person, you think of people like us, right? (laughs) But this whole time, we're building a resume for ourselves, hoping that what we have done on this earth will somehow get us over the line. We believe in Jesus just because that's what any God-fearing American ought to do. Talk about the cross and His blood. But at the end of the day, in the darkest part of the night, when our souls long for something more, we feel a void. We're dissatisfied with ourselves and who we are. The shell of a person we are during the day, pretending we're to be something we know we're not, and at night we wonder. I just wonder in our midst and in our churches today, how many of us have missed in the darkness and the darkest part of the night and the longing of the soul, what we're truly longing for is His Spirit who dwells only amongst those who are truly in Christ. And so my salvation and my calling have been the same thing put together to invite those the religious, the non-religious, the churched, and the unchurched. Those who know Southern Baptist lingo and those who don't care. But to offer you the gospel. And so, Father, I do that now. I offer my friends the gospel. A gospel that comes with a great history. A history that tells us who we are. A gospel that tells us our inclination to sin every time. (laughs) A gospel that redeems us in the midst of that. And a gospel that calls us to give our lives to Jesus. Not just in words, but but in our work. And so, Father, may we just see the places that we have worshipped, the things that we have elevated to priority and first place that never belong there. Lord, may we... Lord, would You just save us if we're not? Would You just save us and would You fixate our eyes on Jesus? So in the darkest part of the night and the deepest part of the soul that that we would not be tempted to fill it with our own narrative. That we would find Jesus there. I, I don't, and I know that none of us want to miss the Messiah. We don't want to miss Jesus, but oh, it's so easy, Father, when we live a life talking about Him. By your Spirit, would you claim us? And for those of us in Christ, remind us 
that it is your work that saves and that keeps us for the day of redemption. We love you, our Father who is in heaven, the Holy of Holies. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.